When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome back, Crimeaholics, and happy, happy new year. I cannot believe that we are already here in the second week of 2023, but I am completely here for it. I am so beyond hopeful that 2023 is going to be a fantastic year. 2022 can absolutely kick rocks. It was a terrible year for myself personally, and after seeing everyone's New Year's posts on Facebook on January 1st, it seems like that was a common trend. So 2022, goodbye. I am manifesting 2023 to be an amazing year for all of us. So today is Monday, which for all of you OG podcast listeners know that that means it's missing Monday. For those of you that are new to the podcast, first of all, welcome. My name is Holly, and I am one of the hosts here at Crimeaholics. Secondly, Missing Mondays is a segment that was created to help keep missing persons' name and information in the media the best we can, and to hopefully help aid in their return home. 90,000 people are missing in the U.S. at any given time, and while some are found alive or deceased, the majority are still missing today. For us, missing cases are something we are very passionate about, and I hope that you guys will get just as passionate as we are about them. There are families that are left with so many questions, and on top of that, sometimes these families feel utterly alone. When the hype of a missing person's case dies down and the people that were so once invested and interested in following these cases begin to forget and go back to their regular daily lives, the missing person's family often feel forgotten. It is our mission to let these families know that their loved one still matters to us and to our listeners, and that is why we continue to share a new missing person every single week. Today's case actually comes from my neck of the woods here in Nevada and is a very perplexing case with a lot of unanswered questions. It is almost as if this man has just completely fell off the face of the earth, but we know that is absolutely impossible and that someone out there knows something. Today's Missing Monday case is on the baffling disappearance of Stephen Kosher. One thing that I forgot to say in my intro, and forgive me before we jump in, I just wanted to add this. I am recording in a different area than I typically record, and so if the audio sounds a little bit different, please forgive me. Usually I record in my closet uh, because the sound just doesn't bounce off the clothes. So if it sounds a little bit more echoey today, that is something that I'm going to be working on going forward in my podcast room. 
So Stephen Kosher was a 30-year-old devout Mormon who was living in St. George, Utah at the time of his disappearance in December of 2009. Growing up, Stephen was a very outgoing child, and he was the second of five children that his parents, Rolf and Deanne, had. Stephen was described by his cousin Casey as someone who always wanted to be where the action was. He was very lively and just all around a super fun, loving guy. Stephen was also very helpful and always wanted to help however he could. He was very close with his family, which consisted of a lot of cousins, and as he got older, it also included many nieces and nephews that he loved and adored. He enjoyed sports growing up, including swimming and water skiing on the lake. On top of being a lover of sports, Stephen was also very talented. He could sing, write songs, play the guitar, and he also loved to draw. Overall, Stephen's mom said that he had this zest for life and had no fear and would absolutely try anything and everything at least once. All through his childhood, he was a part of the Boy Scouts, and he worked his way up to the highest rank attainable, which is known as an Eagle Scout. After high school, he went off to college at the University of Utah, where he majored in communications. After college, Stephen went on a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where he was a missionary in Brazil and became fluent in Portuguese so that he could speak and preach the word to the locals. After finishing up his mission, it seemed like he was going to follow in his father's footsteps, who was a publicist and a newspaper editor. Stephen began working for the newspaper that Rolf was an editor for, and he remained there for a year and a half. In 2007, he moved on to work for the Salt Lake Tribune in their digital advertising division where he had worked the overnight shift. Stephen was fairly happy with his job, minus the hours, and he stayed there for another year and a half before he finally decided that it was time to move. According to many articles I read and interviews that I watched, the colder weather in Salt Lake City began to wear on Stephen. He mainly grew up in Texas, where the winters were much milder and the temperatures remained significantly warmer year-round. According to his father, the winter months seemed to be really wearing on Stephen, and he just wanted to go somewhere where the winters weren't so long, and he thought that St. George, Utah was a promising, fresh new start for himself. When he first moved to St. George, Stephen began working for an internet advertising company. In April of 2009, he moved into a house that he shared with a roommate, and though the two men were very cordial with each other, they found that they didn't really have a lot in common. Stephen, as I mentioned, was a very devoted Mormon, and part of that religion is that they don't drink alcohol or do any kind of drugs. Stephen didn't even drink coffee. It seemed like from the get-go that this roommate had different values than Stephen, but he always remained kind and often invited the roommate to some of the events that took place at the church, which from my understanding, the roommate would sometimes attend. Shortly after moving to St. George, Stephen jumped right back into attending church and quickly made friends within his ward. Stephen's cousin said that for single adults within the Mormon community, the ward was pretty much your life. 
everything gets based around the ward and it's where you meet people with similar values and people that want the same thing. A lot of times members within the Mormon community marry others within their ward and a wife and a family of his own was very much something that 30-year-old Stephen Kosher wanted. Most of Stephen's siblings were all married and beginning their own families, and it was something that he had always dreamed about doing himself. And he, of course, dated and had several girlfriends that he was interested in, but most of them weren't as interested or dedicated in the church as he was. And it was really important to him to find someone with just as strong as faith as he had. So he never felt like any of the women that he dated were the right one for him. It wasn't long into his move to St. George that the job for the online advertising company ended and Stephen was struggling to begin finding new work. In 2008, the recession that took place really affected the work situation in St. George, Utah. So when Stephen found himself jobless mid-2009, he really struggled to find something new. He did, however, find some part-time work handing out flyers for a local window washing company, but this job wasn't able to provide him with enough income that he needed to sustain his life, and slowly but surely, he began to run out of money. And initially, Stephen's family were unaware of some of the struggles that he was going through, but it eventually became clear to them that he was struggling financially. All of his family wanted to help, and they offered to give him money, which he turned down. His grandmother had given him a check for his rent, but he refused to deposit it. His father also gave him money to put towards rent, but he also never used that money. Stephen had a really hard time with accepting help from loved ones, which is something that I personally can relate with. That's something that I often find myself struggling with. I rarely ask for help with anything and would much rather drown than burden anyone or make anyone feel like they are obligated to help me. One evening in early December, Stephen's father, Rolf, received a phone call from Stephen's landlord stating that Stephen was nearly three months behind on rent, which was about like $1,800 if I remember right. When Rolf called his son and offered help, Stephen refused to continue the conversation, and he was almost offended that his dad had even brought it up. And Stephen seemed so upset by this conversation that he even hung up on his father. And I'm going to guess for Stephen, this was a pride thing. He didn't want to accept the help from his father or even his grandmother who gave him that check, because by accepting that, he would feel like a failure. And I know we all preach not to compare ourselves and our lives to others, but from an interview I watched with his cousin, she had stated that Stephen struggled with doing that. He struggled with not comparing himself to other people, mainly those within his family. It had seemed like everyone in his family and everyone around him, such as his siblings and cousins, were all doing well for themselves, while Stephen was struggling and couldn't seem to catch a break. So even though Stephen hung up on his father, the following day, Rolf did receive a text from him on December 10th, where Stephen said, I'm okay, dad. I just want to do it on my own. Later that day, Stephen also spoke on the phone with his mother, Deanne, and she said that he sounded upbeat and in good spirits and that they had made plans about when he was going to be coming home for the holidays. 
He told his mom that he had to work certain days, but that he would be able to make it home on December 23rd. Little did his family know these interactions with Stephen would be some of the last that they would ever have. A week after his conversation with his mom on December 10th, 2009, 30-year-old Stephen Kosher's mom, Deanne, received another phone call. When she answered this phone call, she was surprised to find a police officer from the Henderson, Nevada Police Department calling to report that her son's car had been found abandoned and that it had been parked in the same place since December 13th. At this point, it was now December 17th. Now, for those that aren't familiar with where Henderson, Nevada is, it's about two hours from St. George, but it's about a 20-minute drive south from the Las Vegas Strip. And this surprised Stephen's family to hear that he had been down in that area because they hadn't known him to go there before. The Henderson police informed Stephen's parents that the car had been found abandoned in a cul-de-sac. The fact that this car was found there was a complete gut punch to the koshers because instantly they knew that something wasn't right. So they began trying to call and contact Stephen, which he didn't answer. They then contacted their cell phone carrier since they all were on the same phone plan and they requested for them to see if they could find the phone's location. Unfortunately, they were unable to obtain that information because the phone appeared to have been dead. The idea of something sinister didn't really settle in for his mom immediately. She was more concerned that the hurdles and life struggles that Stephen had been dealing with had caused him to walk off into the desert and harm himself. Feeling panicked and unsure on what to do, the koshers called the St. George Police Department where they began working with Detective Adam Olmstead. And this is when they also officially filed a missing persons report over the phone. After filing that report, they then began the five-hour drive to St. George, Utah. Friday, December 18th, Rolf goes over to his son's house that he was renting and used a spare key that he had to let himself inside. Stephen was the only person that was currently living in this house at that time because the roommate had moved out of the house a month before. When Rolf entered his son's room, he found that the room was very neat and organized and it didn't appear that he had packed any of his belongings to run away. Rolf found that not only did it appear that Stephen's clothes were all there, but he noted that Stephen's laptop was there as well as his phone charger. But one thing that they couldn't find was Stephen's passport. Rolf recalls that a month before Stephen went missing, he had requested to get his passport from his father so that he could use it for some job applications. So with that nowhere to be found, his family then starts to wonder if Stephen just ran off for a while once more to get away from all the struggles that he was dealing with. But that didn't explain why his car was found in Henderson, Nevada, nor does it explain all of Stephen's belongings and phone chargers still inside his home. 
If Stephen was going to go and travel like that, his family was certain that he would have taken at least his cell phone charger. Rolf was able to locate Stephen's spare car keys, and he drove to Henderson, Nevada, where the car was parked in the cul-de-sac. When they arrived where the car was parked, they were completely shocked to find that this cul-de-sac wasn't in the ghetto or in any sketchy location. It was located within an affluent retirement community that was for residents aged 55 and above. The homes were nice, the community seemed well-maintained, and what was even more odd was that this location of the car wasn't one where maybe Stephen had just pulled over at because he ran out of gas or something along those lines. Rolf used the spare key to try and see if his son's car would start, thinking that maybe he had some sort of mechanical issues and had to walk off. But he started the car with zero issues and found that a half a tank of gas was still left inside. So that completely ruled out the possibility that he ran out of gas or that the car had some sort of mechanical issues. Rolf begins to wonder if maybe Stephen had been a victim of carjacking and that the car was dumped and abandoned at this weird location or if his son truly had just left it there. So he calls the Henderson Police Department and they respond quickly. They spent two hours at the scene where the car was found asking questions and doing reports. And the Henderson PD felt like this was likely alcohol or drug related and that Stephen would eventually turn up. And because of that assumption and the lack of evidence of a hijacking, the Henderson PD didn't do any kind of forensic sweep or fingerprinting of the car. Rolf did his own looking at the items within the car and found things like scriptures, applications, and flyers for the window washing business that Stephen was working part-time for. So he started to think that maybe Stephen had drove to Henderson to pass those flyers out, somehow trying to establish some sort of business down in Nevada. But after speaking with those within the retirement community, none of them had received a flyer for the business. They also found a blanket, pillow, and food inside the car, which appeared that maybe Stephen had traveled a bit and had slept in the car. One thing that they found inside the car that really stuck out to them was a bag that they found from Kmart, and inside it appeared to hold Christmas gifts. There was a baby bib, some ornaments for kids, as well as some individually wrapped decorated Christmas cookies. These gifts were assumed to be gifts for his older brother and his children because Stephen had drawn this brother's name for the family's annual gift exchange. These little items, which may seem insignificant, proved to his family that this wasn't just a case of Stephen running off. He had plans to go home for Christmas, and he had thoughtfully picked out these gifts for his brother's children. They needed to find Stephen more than ever. Again, because of the proximity of Las Vegas, it wasn't unusual for odd occurrences to happen in and around the Henderson area. 
And as someone who lives here, I can vouch that there is a lot of things that take place here in the Vegas area. And people frequently go missing only to turn up after a drug or alcohol bender. But the koshers were sure that this wasn't what had happened to Stephen because he was so invested in his faith and religion. Though they didn't agree with the Henderson Police Department's theories that Stephen would be found within a few days, they accepted it, but they ramped up their own personal search. For nearly a week, the police and the media weren't interested in Stephen's story, so the kosher family was forced to put in their own work searching. Rolf and Stephen's brothers go back to the neighborhood where his car was found and approached the house that was closest to where Stephen's car was found. To their surprise, the people living there were super helpful and actually told them that they had security cameras outside of the home that may have caught something. But they ran into a slight setback when they learned that the system required special equipment to obtain the footage and view it. Stephen's uncle quickly hired a private investigator, and this investigator was able to go to the home and obtain the footage, but they were told that it could take some time to analyze all of the footage. So while this PI worked on that, the family continued doing their search in and around this neighborhood, looking for any clues. On top of ground searches that the family conducted, they also began calling around to hospitals, shelters, and even the local jail to see if Stephen was there. Of course, all of those phone calls led to dead ends. While Stephen's father and brothers were working on their searches in Henderson, Deanne was working on combing through all communications that Stephen had leading up to his disappearance on his cell phone. She was hopeful that they could piece together some reasoning that Stephen would have been in Nevada. She thought that maybe some sort of church function brought him there, but it had not. She spoke with two men who may have been the last people that Stephen had spoken with before he seemingly vanished. On the morning of December 13th at 7.52 a.m., Stephen received a call from a man, and the other man had called him at 9.53 a.m. Deanne learned that both of these phone calls were in regard to some church business and that both men were from Stephen's ward. During these conversations, Stephen had told both men that he was in Las Vegas, but never said why or what he was doing there. Both men did say that Stephen sounded as normal as ever. He was calm, upbeat, forthcoming on being where he was, and didn't seem like anything was wrong at all. After speaking with them, Deanne was able to access Stephen's bank statements to look into the activity that had taken place after his disappearance. And what she found made the fear that something bad had happened to her son even worse. She found that Stephen's credit cards hadn't been used since the day he went missing on December 13th. Stephen's brother was also able to figure out his login information for his email and they began searching for any kind of clues there. But all they were able to find was countless job application submissions and rejection notices. They found nothing about travel plans to Vegas or any potential appointments that he may have had there. They also checked his search history and once more found zero signs that Stephen was even considering hurting himself. 
There was no searches about suicides or anything of that nature, nor was there any kind of searches about people walking off to begin a new life. As the days ticked by with no sign of Stephen, his family remained hopeful that on December 23rd, Stephen would walk through the doors at his parents' home like he had promised he would do. But as the day came and went, his mom said that living through that day was worse than living through Christmas days later. She had tried to remain hopeful, but those hopes were officially crushed. Just after Christmas, that private investigator that had been hired that was working on reviewing the security footage called with some news. They were finally able to go through the footage and they found Stephen's car pulling up into the cul-de-sac. The actual cul-de-sac is just out of camera shot, but they were able to see his car pull down that direction. And then once he got in the cul-de-sac, he apparently sat inside of his car for six minutes before he could be seen walking away from the area at almost exactly noon on December 13th. It appears that Stephen knows where he is headed in the video. He does not appear to be disoriented. He doesn't appear to be looking for something or looking over his shoulder like maybe he thought he was being followed. He is walking with his head up like he knew exactly where he was headed. They also saw that in one of his hands, it appeared that he was holding a manila folder. And his father felt that this was potentially something that Stephen would have had his resume in. Stephen then turns a corner and the other camera on a different part of the house catches him walking across the street to what seemed like a different house within the neighborhood. Now I will say that you cannot say without a doubt that this is Stephen in the footage. His family fully believes it's him by the clothing the person is wearing as well as the way that he walks, but the footage isn't the best quality, but it's hard to be absolutely certain despite his family being sure it's him. So after this moment of Stephen crossing to the other side of the street, he goes out of camera sight and is never seen again. Everyone is at a loss of what to do now. It seems like there's several possibilities here. Either Stephen went into one of the houses within the neighborhood, he met up with someone and got into their car, someone snatched him up, or he just kept on walking and then something happened. A cousin of Deanne came up with the brilliant idea that we all are familiar with, but we don't see it utilized much anymore. This cousin said that she had a friend that had a connection to the local dairy called Anderson's Dairy here in Las Vegas. She suggested to get Stephen's face and information printed on the side of the milk cartons for Anderson Dairy. The dairy was willing to help, but they wanted to check with the Henderson Police Department about the status of the case. And it was around this time that those within the Kosher family feel like the Henderson Police Department actually really began looking at this case as a serious missing persons case, and not just a case of an adult who ran off to do some illegal activity that would eventually turn up. Finally, Detective Robert McKay gets assigned to Stephen's case, and they began going door to door to ask anyone within the neighborhood if they had seen Stephen, but it seemed like nobody had. A massive search began on December 30th with helicopters and ATVs out in the desert. 
This search consisted of four days of searching from the Henderson Police Department, the Las Vegas Metro PD, as well as a lot of volunteers. The police departments also had a team of people who went out passing flyers and going door to door to hundreds of homes to give flyers to residents within the Henderson area. And while I appreciate their efforts, this all should have been done significantly sooner. A week after this first initial four-day search, the Kosher's extended family all came out and did their own ground searches of the desert, and once more, they found nothing. Towards the end of January 2010, Stephen's cousin created a Facebook page called Help Us Find Stephen Kosher. Her mission with this page was not only to bring awareness to his case, but to also hopefully generate new leads and tips. And it was on that page that they received a tip from someone who worked at a Las Vegas IHOP. And this person had said that there was a man who appeared to be homeless that was coming in every single night and that he looked like the man that they had seen on the posters. This employee said that the man would come in and he didn't have any money, but they would still give him an iced tea anyway. For several days, the entire kosher family went to stake out this IHOP in hopes to see this man, but he never showed up. Tips continued to flow in from people who thought that they may have seen Stephen at a bus stop or on a bus going somewhere else. All the while, his family held out hope that maybe Stephen was going through some sort of mental health crisis and that maybe he was in need of help because he didn't know who he was. The police obviously worked behind the scenes to continue to dig into Stephen's digital footprint, and they were shocked to find that on December 14th, so the day after Stephen's car was left in the cul-de-sac, Stephen or someone with Stephen's phone had checked his voicemail at 6.04 a.m., but they were unable to determine if that was Stephen or someone else, but it left a lot of questions. Had Stephen ditched his phone somewhere and someone found it and was trying to check messages? Had someone that harmed him tried to check messages? Or was it actually Stephen who did it himself? There's just a lot of possibilities here and no answers. And then a tip came into the St. George Police Department and this tip will likely blow your mind because I was absolutely shocked not only about the tip itself, but who actually called this tip in. In early 2010, the St. George Police Department got a call from a man by the name of Stephen Powell. And if that name doesn't ring a bell, let me just go over who Stephen Powell is. Stephen Powell is the father of Joshua Powell, who was married to Susan Cox Powell. And Susan Cox Powell went missing on December 6th. 2009, so just over a week before Stephen went missing and was last seen by her husband Joshua at their home in West Valley City, Utah. 
Now, Stephen Powell tells the authorities that they should look to find a link between Susan and Stephen Kosher going missing because it's a possibility that they ran off together. If you're familiar with the Susan Powell case, you know that this is just a wild thing for Joshua's father to be throwing out there. And if you're not familiar with this case, I highly, highly, highly suggest you guys go and listen to season one of the podcast called Cold. They do an incredible deep dive on this case. If you want to watch a documentary on that case, I suggest checking out Hulu because I believe that's where I first learned about the case and it blew my mind and kept me up at night. There are a few similarities between Stephen Kosher's case and Susan Powell's case. Both Susan and Stephen went missing in December of 2009, and they, like I said, went missing just a week apart from each other. Stephen also once lived in northern Utah, which is where Susan lived. And they both were a part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But if you know anything about Utah, you know that Utah's population is around 60% Mormon across the entire state. There's a lot of Mormons within that state. And to think that these two just happened to know each other and ran off together is a wild theory. But the theory was that potentially Stephen and Susan ran off to a foreign country since he had previously lived in Brazil and his passport wasn't found within his room at his home in St. George. They checked flights and found that Stephen's name wasn't on any passenger list and when looking at his phone records, they found that he also hadn't communicated at all with Susan on his cell phone nor had he been in contact with her through email. After the St. George and the West Valley City Police Departments had a sit-down conversation, they ruled out the possibility that these two cases were connected in any kind of way. Emotionally, the Kosher family was struggling, as I think anyone with a missing loved one would do. And with the fact that their son was missing and zero answers at this point in time, they really struggled with going through Stephen's belongings. They were packed away and put aside for them to go through whenever things seemed a little less painful. And on one evening, they looked through some of his belongings again. And when they did that, they found Stephen's passport that had been missing. Tucked away in the back of a binder was the passport that gave them one teeny small shred of hope that their son was potentially off in another country. And I can imagine that this was very heartbreaking for them to find. Authorities were still working through to piece together any kind of information, and they also began looking further into his financial records. They had found some transaction that had taken place three days before Stephen went missing on December 10th that really stuck out to them because it was very unusual in comparison to the other transactions on his bank card. Authorities presented food and gas receipts to Rolf and Deanne that showed that Stephen had done a drive that was over a thousand miles that took him up through Utah through the Salt Lake City area, and then over into northern Nevada, and then back to St. George, all within 14 hours. That is a whole lot of driving to be done in that amount of time. Some of the people working on the case began to speculate that perhaps Stephen had gone to northern Nevada to a town called Wendover to gamble. 
and that he had also gone and visited the Las Vegas area to gamble in an attempt to make money since he was struggling financially so bad. And if it wasn't gambling, then perhaps Stephen was running drugs or something illegal. They started to look into Stephen's roommate, who, as I stated, lived a very different life than Stephen, and they found that this ex-roommate had a charge in 2007 for illegal possession and use of a substance. So maybe Stephen, who was so hard up for cash, agreed to do a few drug runs for his old roommate or someone that the roommate knew in order to make some quick cash. With this possibility in hand, Stephen's father, Rolf, asked the Salt Lake City Police Department to bring over their drug-sniffing dogs to sniff out the car. The dogs spent an entire hour going over the car from front to back and back to front. And the dog handler, who had over 20 years' experience, told Rolf that there was absolutely no way that this car had ever had drugs inside of it, because if it had, his dogs would have detected it. And I'm sure that that was a bit of a relief for his family to hear. Because here they are, searching for their son, and all of these possible scenarios are coming up that seemingly could potentially prove that their child wasn't who they thought he was. And then to only find out that it's safe to say that the drug theory was absolutely not a possibility. And I am sure that that was somewhat of a relief, or at least I know it would have been for me. And of course, the police also interviewed the roommate and concluded that Stephen wasn't involved with any illegal drug activity. And the roommate was ruled out of having any kind of involvement in the case, and he only had good things to say about Stephen when asked about him. Everyone was stumped as to why Stephen would have made that long trip to northern Nevada, and his cousin posted about it on that Facebook page. A follower of the Facebook page reached out and said that they knew why he was up there. Apparently, the church had a project in Ruby Valley, Nevada, and this was an area he was familiar with because the parents of an old girlfriend lived there. So while he was there for a church project, he stopped off at her parents' house and had lunch with them. His father believes that Stephen probably thought that she would have been there too, but she wasn't there that afternoon. After this lunch with her parents, he headed back down to his home in St. George. Once more, the family is back at square one with more questions than answers. Four months after Stephen's disappearance, in April of 2010, his family was left feeling like they're not really sure what to do next. They weren't sure where to turn. They had felt like they were running out of energy to keep up searching. And this is when a private investigator by the name of Craig Redke contacted the family and offered his assistance pro bono. He had been following the case from the beginning and felt compelled to help this family in the search for their son. He wanted nothing in return other than their acceptance of his help, which they readily accepted. Craig had a theory that Stephen was headed to go to a meeting with someone within that neighborhood, and he believes that this meeting was set up during a chance encounter on the street, possibly when Stephen was handing out flyers for the window washing company. Maybe Stephen had met someone, he expressed his need for work, and this person had told him to come to his or her home in Henderson, Nevada. This theory to me seems like the most likely 
there was no communication on Stephen's email or phone showing that he had talked to someone. And in the video, it appeared that he was walking like he knew where he was going. And one thing that stuck out to me was the fact that they know that Stephen had sat in his car for six minutes and that he then walked by the camera at that house at exactly noon. Did Stephen get to this neighborhood early to scope out where he needed to go, parked his car, waited because he was a little early, and then walked to his appointment at noon? Stephen also had what appeared to be a folder with him, which his father felt was likely because he was carrying his resume with him. Which once more goes with that theory that he was headed to a work-related meeting. And whether this meeting was intentionally set up to trap Stephen or something happened during it, Craig Redkey doesn't believe that Stephen ever left that Henderson neighborhood, and the koshers also agree with this assumption. Craig also followed up on leads that were given to the Help Us Find Stephen Kosher Facebook page, and one of those tips came from an anonymous person who said that they needed to look for Stephen's remains in this certain area of the desert near Henderson. Rolf and Craig organized a private search with friends and family of the koshers, and they began scouring this area of the desert for any kind of clues. During this search, they found an abandoned tent and campsite that appeared to have housed someone there for several months. Also not far from this tent, they found some bones, which had everyone on the edge of their seats but ultimately they found that those bones belonged to an animal. On top of the bones not being Stevens, they did some DNA testing of items found within the tent, and they also found that this tent hadn't belonged to Steven either. Over the years, there were people who lived in that neighborhood that Steven's car was found in, and they would mention a certain house within the neighborhood that they had suspicions about. And coincidentally, this house was also one that authorities had taken an interest in as well. But nobody has ever been named a person of interest in this case. The most recent article on this case that I could find came out last month on December 19th, 2022. This article was published by 8 News Now and talks about a neighbor who is finally publicly speaking out about the case, but has requested that their identity be concealed. This neighbor states that between 11.54 a.m. and noon, Stephen spoke to them. This neighbor says that they remember Stephen saying I need money to them after they opened their door. This person claims that they didn't see Stephen exit his car, but he rang their doorbell. According to this article, this person went to answer the door, but Stephen had already walked off and was on the other side of the street when he had said, I need money. This stuck out as odd to this person because Stephen was walking on the other side of the street that doesn't have a sidewalk. They said that they closed their door and that was the last time that they saw him. Later in the article, it states that a police report indicates officers interviewed one neighbor after Stephen's disappearance that this neighbor appeared to be nervous when contacted and asked about Stephen. This person said that they didn't recognize Stephen and that they had no friends. They also said that they, quote, did not trust anyone due to the drug lifestyle that people tend to have, end quote. 
Which if you ask me, that's kind of a weird and random thing to say just randomly when asked about a missing man, but what do I know? There also was another house within the neighborhood that some other neighbors were suspicious about. And allegedly, the person that lived in this house moved out of their home on the same day that Stephen went missing. And lastly, this article touches on some photos that investigators obtained from a house within the neighborhood that were taken shortly after his disappearance. These photos show several holes to the walls and other damages within the home. This also happens to be the same house that private investigators working on the case all believe that Stephen was headed to in those final moments that were caught on camera. They question whether these damages happened during a struggle and a fight. Unfortunately, this case is just really going to need someone to come forward with some kind of key piece of evidence or information if it's true that something sinister here happened. But again, there's several theories out there that Stephen was suffering from something mentally and he's out there somewhere living among the homeless, unaware of who he is. I'm, of course, curious of what your guys' thoughts and opinions are about this case. So make sure you're a part of our private Facebook group so you can let me know what you think. Nobody has been named a person of interest or suspect in this case. If you have any kind of information, you can submit it anonymously through Crime Stoppers by calling 702-385-5555 or visit the link in the description of this episode to submit a tip. Stephen Kosher has been missing for 13 years now. At the time of his disappearance on December 13, 2009, Stephen was 30 years old. If still alive today, Stephen would be 43 years old. Stephen is described as being 5'10 to 5'11 in height and weighs 180 pounds. He is a white male with blonde hair and blue eyes, and he has surgical scars behind each ear. He also has several birthmarks on his abdomen that nearly form the shape of a Nike swoosh. It appeared that Stephen was last seen wearing a white dress shirt, blue jeans or docker pants, and white sneakers. Please, if you know anything or you think you may have seen something, please call it in. This family deserves answers and closure. Unfortunately, Stephen's father, Rolf, passed away before he could ever learn what happened to his son. My heart goes out to all that know and love Stephen. 13 years with no answers is far too long. Crimeaholics, I wish I could say I had more information to provide you on this case, but unfortunately, I do not. Again, make sure you join our private Facebook group. You can find it by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. In there, we share all information and pictures pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. You can also follow us over at crimeaholics.podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like more true crime content, you can follow me on TikTok at the same username of crimeaholics.podcast. And lastly, if you wish to follow myself personally, you can find me on Instagram at crimeaholly. Crimeaholics, that is all for this week's Missing Monday case. I will be back Friday with another episode for you all. Until then, be aware and take care.